of this church for three years before I became a staff member, and I spent 17 years as a pastor here. 37 years ago this month, Francine walked down that aisle, and then we both walked back up that aisle as husband and wife. We dedicated our children on this platform. I knelt down right here to be ordained by the laying on of hands. I preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons from this spot. The last time I preached a sermon from this spot was a millennium ago. <laughs> it was July 27, 1999, and it's great to be back home. I'm not here to ramble down memory lane, but I am going to incorporate some memories into my sermon today, primarily to flesh out the application of God's Word, and also because you have played such a special role in my life, my development as a pastor. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for this opportunity. I pray that I'd use it as a good steward. I take it as grace. I thank you, Lord, that um, I follow Sean's sermon of last week, which could not have been a more perfect coalescing of uh, sermons. And I pray for him and his family as they move forward. And I pray for this church that move forward in grace and truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's perfect, unlike any of us. And I pray that we would do a good job of handling it and obeying it and sharing it. Help me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so consider your school years. Was there any subject, or is there any subject you dread? For me, the answer is just crystal clear. It's math. I just, I don't have a math brain. I remember, you know, I was doing okay. It was hard enough. Math class was kind of torturous for me, but then... They hit me with algebra. And it was like 2 plus x equals 4. I'm like, wait a minute, you don't slipped out the alphabet in there. It was bad enough when it was just numbers, now we got alphabet. I don't know what to do with it. I apologize to the math teachers who tried to help me and to all others in the field. People like me are not your fault. And I promise to stay away from projects like uh, Balancing books, designing video games, launching rockets, things like that. Um, I'm glad there are people who like math. One of my best friends loves math. He's a statistician. And so if you love math, all I can say is go figure. <laughs> it's just not me. But even I can handle 2 plus 2 equals 4. And when people want to say something is simple, they say it's as simple as 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? The message I want to give you today is this. Basic, healthy church ministry is simple as 2 for 2. I say, what in the world does that mean? Let's see. This sermon is going to have four points. And the first one is this. What I wanted to be. What I wanted to be. I did not want to be a pastor. That was God's surprise. I didn't even want to be a Christian. But God had other plans. 
far as careers go, my first ambition was to drive a street cleaner. I remember being about three or four years old. This was down on, on uh, South, what was it? South, yeah, South 16th Street, Newark. And what, this guy drove one of those ones, you know, the really tall ones with three wheels and a big brush in front. And I thought, there could not be a more awesome job in this whole world. And so that was my first ambition. Well, by the time I got to high school, I wanted to be an architect. Until I met one. Um, and I sat and I asked him what it was like. And he told me it was like day in and day out. And he told me about things like tons of codes and troubleshooting with contractors and all this stuff. And I said, you know what? I like to draw. And that's pretty much where it ends. So I designed an escape into music. And I was uh, two years as a, a trumpet major at Montclair State College. And I still play, but not for food and clothing. And after two years of studying music uh, through an extraordinary series of events, I switched over to Bible, went to Northeastern Bible College, which was down the road, studied Bible and theology, and settled into that course, and uh, eventually became a pastor, and have been serving as one for almost four decades. Once I became a pastor, I wanted to be a good one. And there were many books and seminars and fellow pastors who said that the things I, were doing, I was doing were the right things to do. And I had measurable success doing them. And I've seen God work in many lives uh, through my ministry by His grace, including some of the lives in this room. And I'm grateful for all that. But I came to see a problem with the standard approach to church ministry that I used and even succeeded with that. And for that, we're going to go to point two. Point two is what I did not see. What I did not see. And I did not see how my success was my weakness. It was a kind of an Achilles heel kind of thing. Because I did very well leading program-rich churches. The bad part I discovered was that the many activities I designed, led, and encouraged actually crowded out one vital thing, and that's corporate prayer. Corporate? What does that mean? You mean like IBM, Apple, Amazon, Coca-Cola? Not at all. I'm using it according to the original Latin sense of the word corpus, which means a living body. A living body. And uh, the Bible calls the church the body of Christ, saying that we're not just an organization or a club or a task force. The world can do that. We are a living entity uh, called together in this profound kind of unity with one another and with Christ. So, if we want to use words the way we should in a way that has full meaning. Corporate prayer is prayer in which we put aside groups based on age or life stage or gender or marital status or ministry task, and we pray as one united living body. Of course, when believers pray, it's always in some sense the body praying. But corporate prayer really is when the body comes together to pray. It's when we get past our divvy-up ministry that we like so much. And the body prays together as members of a whole, vitally connected 
living entity. The ministry books and seminars and more that I absorbed for decades and that all told me I was doing the right thing had virtually nothing to say about that kind of prayer. And there's almost no body-oriented prayer in the American evangelical church. Sure, some people pray in some groups, but the church as a whole body rarely plays, prays together in this way. And I came to see that that's a huge mistake. Well, let's go to point three. What I came to see. What I came to see. And what I came to see was in Acts. And that's where we're going to go now. So turn to Acts 2, and we're going to get to the meat of the morning right here. We're turned to the only, only inspired church growth book. My uh, farewell sermon in this church was from Acts 20. After I um, moved on to other uh, service uh, locations, I preached an expository series of every verse in Acts from beginning to end. In the process of that, I came to see the obvious, that a great model of ministry was staring me right in the face all along. And Acts 2.42 is that model. It is a prescription for health. And I discovered that Bible scholars across centuries and across all kinds of church traditions and all kinds of ministry callings have all said the same thing, that this is a prescription. This is a model for any church at any time. And the agreement is remarkable. They get scholars to agree on anything. It's remarkable. I'm actually working on a book on this, and I went to, my son is the archivist at the uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, and I worked through every single Acts commentary in their library looking at this passage I'm going to preach on in just a second. Every one of them. And I found that everybody, when they said anything at all about this, said this is a model for ministry, and I didn't find a single scholar say it wasn't, that it was just a description of what the church did. Not a single one. For example, Craig Blomberg writes this, verse 42 is regularly cited as the earliest description of four central elements in Christian worship, which should characterize the church as it gathers in any time and place. Richard Lenski, here we have a brief description of the religious life of the first Christian congregation. All the essentials are present and are in proper order and harmony. The church has always felt that this is a model. Not quite that last part. The American evangelical church has not thought that this is a model. Because if you look through all the church growth books, and I have lots of them, I've read tons of them, none of them mention Acts 2.42 as a model. So there's this massive disconnect between what evangelical scholarship agrees on and the way people in the last four to five decades in American evangelicalism say, we have to do church. I almost can't think of a similar disconnect of that magnitude. Well, when we get to the church in Acts 2, 
we certainly know it's not a perfect church because there's never been one on earth and there won't be one on earth until there's a new heavens and a new earth. But Acts 2.42 shows us a healthy body using this simple but profound model. And that's why my sermon is called Simple as 242 because we're going to look at that. But I want to put it in its context. In Acts 1, uh, the church is praying. That little nascent group, is that's all they're doing. That's all they're doing is praying. Because Jesus said, you wait. And they know, well, we've got to go to the waiting room and actively wait, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And then God sends the Holy Spirit in a special way. And then the church goes out, and what happens? Peter preaches this sermon on Pentecost. And you can read all about that in the first part of Acts 2. But let's pick it up now at Acts 2.41 and see what happened after he preached that sermon. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, just so you know. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. To them? Who's them? Them is the praying church of Acts 1. See it? Because it all came out of that. They devoted themselves the them and the 3,000. <laughs> Two, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? Prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Added to the number of them praying people and the 3,000 who were the result of their prayers. And then added every day. Church growth. Now, I have to answer a potential objection here because I could see somebody saying, well, wait a minute, not so fast. Why do you say Acts 2.42 is the model when you go a little further in the passage, you got these people selling all their possessions and putting them in a pool, and is that a model too? Is that a prescription? Do we have to do that today? And the answer is no, um, because it's Acts 2.42, that's the model, and that way of handling uh, money was a way of fulfilling the model. The funny thing is that mo- that way of fulfilling the model disappears after Acts 5. Whereas all the things in Acts 2.42 are repeated throughout the New Testament and commended and commanded throughout the New Testament. So that's why verse 42 is the model. The verses that we find around it show how the church in certain cases, did it. But it's those things themselves. And we need to drill down very carefully into that verse right now. And I want you to hear the very grammar that Luke used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote this passage. Here's what it says in the Greek text. I'm going to just transfer it right over. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. That's a literal. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, 
to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers, plural. And I'm going to walk you through those four components right now. First, the teaching of the apostles. The two thes in that phrase are important. The people did not devote themselves to some teaching by some of their favorite apostles. They devoted themselves to all that was conveyed by all the apostles. The core teaching of the apostles is the gospel, but the apostles affirmed all that's in the Old Testament, and we have what's in the New Testament by their ministry as well. To devote ourselves, therefore, today to the teaching of the apostles means that we have to affirm and properly apply the entire Bible. God wants receptive disciples. God doesn't want editors. He's not hiring editors. That means we have to declare some hard truths. Peter's Pentecost sermon a perfect point. He sliced and diced hearts. He told those people that they killed their own Messiah and that God raised him from the dead and made him judge. This is a church marketing nightmare. <laughs> you don't do that. If consultants were around, then they would have jumped up and said, time out, Peter. Are you outside your mind? So he gets up and says all these hard truths, and in the process, God saves 3,000 people. And so what happens? Those people devote themselves to all of God's truth, and what happens? The church grows. Now, because Calvary Church is on my ordination certificate, I want you to know something. I can affirm everything I wrote in my ordination paper that was used as the basis of the examination that happened at the lower level of this building. And I want you to know, I haven't budged an inch from the gospel. Because you ordained me, you deserve to know that. The worst possible outcome for a pastor or a church is when you waffle on God's word in some way and then enjoy apparent success. Nothing fails like false success. And nothing succeeds like tenacious faithfulness. All right, let's look at the second component, the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. In the Greek text, Luke uses a noun, not a participle or a verb. The text does not say they devoted themselves to fellowshipping. It doesn't say they, they fellowshipped. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What's the fellowship? The fellowship is a people, not an activity. The fellowship is the group formed by the teaching of the apostles. So what it's saying here goes against what you hear in a lot of church growth books. The people devoted themselves to the people. The church devoted itself to the church. They say, well, 
That sounds like they were inward focused. No. They were upward focused. And they looked at what the God of heaven did in bringing such an unlikely group of people together. And they said, we best love one another in a very strange and powerful and alien way that the world doesn't know. And as they did so, what happened? The world said, where'd you get that guy to love? They said, well, that's upwardly sourced. And the church grew. Marketing can't do that. That takes a miracle. It takes the miracle of a God-made body behaving as one. Or to put it another way, it takes the miracle of a God-made body behaving as one. Third thing, the breaking of the bread. In Greek, it says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. Now, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are two parts of a single story. So, I, Pastor Sean preached from part one of Luke's book, and I'm preaching from part two today. And at the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus breaks the bread at the Last Supper to picture his death. And after the resurrection, two disciples meet Jesus, but were kept from recognizing him. But then he let them recognize him when he was doing what? Breaking the bread. It's a very short walk from Luke 24 to Acts 2. And if you read the two parts together, you know Acts 2.42 is about communion. The early church took seriously this table down below me. Here's the thing. I found out the church growth movement has adopted a consumer approach to ministry, whereas the early church consumed the bread in order to drive out self-interest. You can't grow a church in a healthy way by being consumers unless you're that kind of consumer who consumes the bread to remember that church is not about you, it's not about me, it's not even about us. As much as the church was devoted to the church, they knew that meant to be devoted to the group that doesn't get everything the way they want it. Which, I'm glad Walmart sees me as a consumer. It works great for me. But do not look at churches that way. Totally different thing. Last, the prayers. The prayers, Luke wrote. The definite article and the plural noun indicate set times of prayer for the whole gathered group. Scholars are quite clear on this. And even if you don't know Greek and you don't know it's plural and all of that, just look at the context. The word together occurs again and again in Acts 2.41 to 47. It forms the context for all parts of Acts 2.42. Say, well, I don't need to pray with the gathered body. I pray with my friends. Oh, I don't need to go listen to sermons. I'll just listen to them with a few friends. I don't need to be committed to the body of believers. I'll just have a few close Christian friends. I don't need to gather to eat the Lord's table. I'll just grab some juice and crackers out of my closet. No, they did all those things together. And then when it comes to prayer, we're saying, well, I'm into corporate prayer. I pray with a few friends. No, it doesn't fit. Solo or small group praying is fine. Do lots of it. Do more of it. But that's not what Acts 2.42 is about. Turn to Acts 4. Pastor Jason mentioned Acts 4 before. Let's look at this. Look at Acts 4, 23 to 24. Peter and John were imprisoned for preaching Jesus. 
They get out, and what happens? After they were released, they went to their own people. What people? Them. <laughs> That's who. Them, the ones that pray. They went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised, they is them, <laughs> not Peter and John, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, and then continued to say, take note of the threats against us. Help us speak your word boldly. The evangelical church body is neglecting that. Acts 4.24 shows a whole church praying together. The Greek text says this, with one mind they lifted voice to God. With one mind, they lifted voice, singular, to God. The whole fellowship had one voice through this gathered prayer. And so I'm saying that the prayer program for the church is as simple as 424. It's gathered prayer. God's looking for. One voice. One body. One voice. Guess what? The evangelical church has lost its voice. And I'm sorry to say that I helped produce that result. Over the course of my ministry, most of it, I offered so many ministries and events to people that I inadvertently strangled the body's voice. Because if you put all kinds of programs out there and then you put a prayer meeting in it, prayer meeting is going to be seen as a program for people that are into that sort of thing. Prayer meeting is the Edsel of church programs. If you're younger than me, Google it. I made that happen. And I have repented so that I can do better as a pastor and as a disciple. I meant well, but that's not good enough. I saw what was in the Word and I mended my ways. The last thing Satan wants to see in a church like this is not some great program or some banging music or something. The last thing he wants to see is you people getting together across all boundaries of age and interest and ministry tasks and all of that and praying, even with the kids and youth present. Even if the baby squirms a little and fusses, you think in the early church they didn't have that? Satan has messed with our children and our youth so badly. It would really bother him to see all of us praying together. He's given us a lot of trouble. I say, let's all get together and do Acts 2.42 kind of prayer and give him some trouble for a while. Let's do that. Oh, so many people I know, were, oh, they took prayer out of schools. We took prayer out of church. got to change. Do what Pastor Sean preached about last week. You pray as a body and don't give up. That's your way forward. Come to the last point. What we must be. <clears throat> be as simple as 242 is what I'm saying to you. Which means be devoted as the early church was in the bloom of health. The American Evangelical Church has made ministry far too complicated. 
I'm going to give you an example. Like I said, I have lots of church growth books. Here's, I'm going to quote out of a church book, a church growth book by a church growth leader telling me why I need to read his book. Quote, it presents ideas on how to discern your corporate grace and surrounding microculture, as well as how to synthesize these into your unique vision pathway. More than that, it gives you a vision integration model. This model is a framework for retrofitting all tactical learning to your unique vision. The book overflows with templates and charts. It even has mathematical equations to tell me how to lead a church. His model is not as simple as 242. But I thought that was a staggering discovery when I read that. Check this one out. This is by a leader of the church growth movement in a book specifically designed to say why we have to keep going forward. Yeah, we got to tweak, but we got to go forward. A denominational consultant, not, not free church, uh, recommended I read this as well as other pastors read it. And the author, in one of the early pages, laments a fact. And he says, less than 1% of American churches are growing. And that's a lamentable fact. Turn a page. Next page. Right? He says this. He says, the church growth movement is important because it's responsible for half the growth churches have seen in America. Time out. <laughs> you're telling me I need to follow your direction because you're responsible for 0.5% of the sorry 1% growth we've seen. That's not something you publish. That's something you repress. <laughs> I was not impressed. And he charts the way forward with page after staggering page of demographic studies, intervention, structures, marketing, breakthrough projects. The book bombards us with terms like BHAGs and SWOT analysis and target population, relevance theory, contextualization theory, theory of the sublime, homogeneous units, human emotion theory, and symbolic interactionalism. So I say, okay, why don't you show me some Bible? And I look through the entire book, and you know how many Bible references, let alone quotes, I found? Zero. What do I find in this book? Machiavelli, Edmund Burke, Immanuel Kant, Carl Jung. I get Jim Collins. I don't get the Apostle Peter. I get Peter Drucker. The biggest mistake is the author never bothers to consider when he's saying, hey, we have been part of that 1% growth. That's why we're important. He never stops to consider what the church in America might be like, how it might have grown in size and power had people been putting aside so much of that nonsense and just doing what's in Acts 2.42. That's not even a consideration. Well, it is for me. And, and when I saw it, I said, I, I got to change my ways. Here's the thing. Oddly enough, while I'm not in favor of church marketing in the way most people look at it, the funny thing is, being simple is now what younger people want. 
Leadership Journal editor Brandon O'Brien is a pastor, and he talks to a lot of pastors, and he says this, many people today will be less enamored of the outward appearances that were so successful at bringing in the crowds 10 years ago. People certainly haven't abandoned their demand for excellence altogether, but they are recognizing that excellence can be a veneer for phoniness. The population that is distrustful of authority and was raised hearing upwards of 850 advertising messages a day is skeptical of glam and spin. Many young worshipers are turned off by the overproduced worship music and a speaker who is too polished. Smoothness and precision can come across as insincere. A larger church will have to work even harder to ensure that its authenticity shines through its professionalism. On the other hand, many people will consider a small church's intimacy and ability to respond to the needs of its people as intrinsically genuine. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not against programs. I'll still stand by my church curriculum I wrote. I'm not against groups in church. I'm not against affinity group ministry. Here's what I'm against. I'm against programs getting in the way of priorities. That's what I'm against. I'm all for programs giving breathing space to prayer by the body. And I'm all for the body filling that space, even though I know most of us, including me, are not naturally passionate about corporate prayer. So what? But it's uncomfortable. So what? Comfort is overrated. You don't have to have a passion for prayer. You just have to have an obedience for prayer. We have made it so complicated. In 1963, A.W. Tozer wrote words that are more relevant in our day than his. And he said this, Right now, we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. In its stead are programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and that servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional methods, all testify that we in this day know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. When will we come to the point of repentance, throw all the excuses out the window and fall on our faces before God and an open Bible? When will we repent of our sin and allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to Acts 2.43 says the apostles did many miracles. The interesting thing is Acts 2.42 was not one of them. The devotion was done the old-fashioned way, by obedience. No apostle went, all right, ready, people? Zap! You're all devoted. Never happened. The people did it. It was a daily resolution from the hearts of all the people. Understand this, I can't devote you, no pastor can. You can't devote me, but we can devote us. I'm going to draw to a close now with uh, a story about an expert who had to go back to simple base, basics. He, uh, his, I saw him on this very platform once, trumpet player. Not just a trumpet player, like a really great trumpet player. 
I'm talking about Phil Smith, former principal Trump of the New York Philharmonic. I was in Avery Fisher Hall one day when he played the Bach Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2. It was in 2009. It was mistake-free. It was powerful. It was beautiful. It's one of the most demanding pieces for trumpet. And I was grateful that I witnessed this stellar performance. Four years later, Bill Smith could not get even a single sound out of a trumpet. Started out with an air leak on one side of his mouth while he was playing. And then it just got worse. And Phil Smith knew all about what they call trumpet pedagogy. That means all teaching methods and theories about how to do things right, how to fix problems, expert after expert. I mean, just a guy that studied at Juilliard, played at Chicago Symphony, played in Philharmonic, taught innumerable students. One of the greatest trumpet players for symphony music in the world. Knew all of this stuff, so he said, I'm going to fix this, and he tried harder, and he tried harder. Put pencils in his lips, you know, to build strength. You put the pencil in your mouth, not with a point. And you just try to hold it up, and he found that that was pointless. That was a free one. You'll get it later. Um, so what happens? Here's this guy, and he's trying harder and harder, and he can't get a sound. As he goes on, it gets to a point where less and less is coming out to the point he said, I got like this. And he went, like that. And he said, I realized all I was doing was adding tension to tension. So what do you do? He turned to a trombone player named Janice Kageris. He knew she had helped others with his problem, which was embouchure focal dystonia. And his new coach said this to him, world-famous trumpet player, the one that staggered me with the brilliance and beauty and flawlessness of his performance. She said this to him, anything you think you know about brass pedagogy is going out the window. You're going to have to trust me. And Smith said, boy, that was a journey of trust. Here's how her guidance began. You're not going to believe this. She got a big old giant straw like this and gave it to him and said, do this. And they worked on that for a while. And then what happened? She gave him a straw like this. And then it was... And then when he got that down, she gave him a straw like this, coffee stirrer. And then she said, okay, you're ready. Grab your mouthpiece. And she had him put the mouthpiece on his mouth and start buzzing and slide it into the trumpet. And out came a sound like a duck call. Because he wasn't going for beauty and power. He wasn't trying to impress an audience. He was trying to get back to basics. And this pathetic duck quacky sound comes out. And Phil Smith said this. When that first came out, that was kind of cool. Seven years later, he plays beautifully and teaches trumpet at the University of Georgia. Bill Smith said this, it took someone to take me back to learn to... He forgot, his body forgot how to breathe. 
the church body has done likewise. He said it all came down to moving air. The church body needs to get back to moving air by corporate prayer. It's a journey of trust. We need to trust God's word. There's some good things in some church growth books, even though I'm not in their realm. There's some good things in ministry books in general. But it's not God's word. God's word says, you need, you body, you need to, don't be so tense. Don't be so frantic. Don't think you know what to do. Don't think you have the church pedagogy down. Don't think just because you have years of experience. You know what to do. You need to... We need to trust God's Word. So, devote yourselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. You know what will happen? You will not get the church any of us want. But Jesus will. He expects it. And he deserves it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us all do better. I don't think many, if any of us, intend to get in the way of ministry. But even with our good intentions, we find ways of doing it. And I pray that you would help us to put aside all this complexity for a while and get back to basics, especially moving air as the body. I thank you that I was able to be here today. This is an amazing treat just from a common human perspective to be back with people you love, but it's an immense privilege to step into this pulpit today. And I, I just am overflowing with gratitude for you. I pray for this church. I love this church. And I pray that great days will be ahead as you describe greatness. We put all of this into your capable hands before the throne of grace we kneel with these requests. Not because we deserve it, but because you invite us to come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.